writers, agents, and publishers, for the first time since the Gutenberg Press, find themselves lost in a maze of mystery as technology alters the shape of the publishing industry. Searching for Answers is a group of writers throwing pop culture, writing, and publishing into a crucible of clarity, passion, and humor. This group is the right pack. Welcome back to Right Pack Radio. Today we are going to talk about probably one of the most interesting problems in which writers face, especially getting books banned in libraries and schools and so forth, is the level of violence in a story. So today we're going to talk about violence in fiction. I'm your host, David David Allen Lucas, poet, author of mysteries, science fiction, horror, and usually training, and usually combining them all. And with me today is... I'm Melanie Colaney, um, a writer of science fiction, fantasy, and nonfiction. Uh, Brad R. Cook, uh, author of the steampunk novel Iron Horseman, coming out this November, and uh, I'm also a publisher and president of St. Louis Writers Guild. Vidora Amos, I write Victorian whodunits. If you'd like to see me, I will be someplace where I hope Brad will be, and probably David too, at the St. Louis Writers Guild workshop on August the 2nd. From 10 to noon, it is at the Kirkwood Community Center, and it will be triple the mystery, as two other mystery writers and I are going to give you some secrets. So come by. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) And closing out our little group of five, this is Kathleen Kayembe, your co-host extraordinaire. (laughs) Ha ha ha. I write um, paranormal romance under the pen name Kaseka and Vita, and I like nice things. Getting into this, getting into violence in fiction, let me give you a little background here of some of the people sitting at the table. Fedora writes mysteries, and she wrote the book, as she just talked about, Jack the Ripper in St. Louis. Yes. So we know where her level of violence gets to go. Well, Wait, not necessarily. Uh, <laughs> was it Jack the Ripper, a love story? <laughs> <laughs> like with vampires? Ripping stuff? hearts wow. apart, yes. yes. <laughs> Read the book, Kathleen. <laughs> so it is a romance. <laughs> <laughs> then in the meanwhile, while I'm trying to keep a straight face in front of everybody here, um, Brad and I have done a few seminars on writing the fight scenes. Um, Brad has studied... Uh, years and years of fencing, as well as many other weapons. And I am a third. I am a third degree black belt, almost fourth. Hopefully, I'll have that before the end of the year. Um, and also have studied the katana as well as fencing and so forth. So there's a lot of violent people, oriented people here sitting. <laughs> there's no violence in fighting. What are you talking? Let me add that I'm a pretty darn good shot. Ah, there, there we go. go. No blood, no foul. <laughs> so with that, with that said. Let's start off with, we're going to hit a lot of topics out there, So, but let's start off with, when is violence too much in a, in a fictional story, or is there such a thing as too much violence? I mean, there is spatterpunk, which um, Fedora has, call, has informed us of in a previous episode, which I'm going to call a Tarantino movie written on page rather than in the film. So, when is there too much violence? I- I'd say the level of violence is very much determined by what, well, I was going to say what genre, and that does do it, but it's not just genre. It's part of it is audience expect, what every reader and writer, uh, the writer has a unwritten contract with the reader. And if you're reading something that's splatterpunk, you expect the violence. But if you're reading something that is, let's just say, marketed as a cozy mystery. A cozy is like a little whodunit. Uh Graphic violence would be a violation of the reader's contract there. So part of it is very much, you know, what you're reading. (laughs) So if I sit down to read Miss Marple and there is a massacre... I will be concerned. No, no, no. Oh. There could be a massacre on this page. But yeah, you can't see the you can't see the blood spatter massacre. See, it's how now it's we're getting put. into what's the level of violence? You know, yeah. so how, how much is the level of violence going to matter? Because even in your cozy little mystery, 
somebody died. Yeah. There was a death at the beginning of that book, and somebody's trying to solve that and death. That- now, it could just be that, you know, you know, as we were putting out there, the, the, the little old guy in town just drank the wrong stuff. But, you know, guess what? It turns out that his wife probably poisoned him with the arsenic or something along those lines. That's still a level of violence. And that brings up a very good point. It's not just what happens. It's how it's discussed. Because Agatha Christie kills a lot of people in her books. She does it so well. Yeah, but she kills a whole lot of people. But her books are much, much less violent than a whole lot of authors that have much lower body counts. And then you take a book about war. Which yeah. is almost violence on every page, but at the yeah, same point... Yeah, but there's a difference between well, South Pacific it's, it's and a, It's a level line. of violence that can be on every page, but at the same point, you don't necessarily... The focus isn't the violence. The violence is a backdrop for the rest of the story. You know, mm-hmm. so it, violence is a tricky thing, and, and, you know, it's such an ingrained in our culture that I don't think we could ever get rid of it from a book. I mean, even if you take some of, like, Dr. Seuss's stuff, <laughs> you know, Cat in the Hat, he's a little violent. Just in a very comical, funny way. Well, and don't forget, um, Sherlock Holmes was one of the first fictional martial artists in the West. I was just thinking about uh, slapstick humor, Brad, when you were talking about the cat in the hat. Because it's very funny to see uh, the Three Stooges, but they're not very nice to each other. No, no. In fact, I mean, if you think about it, like an old Warner Brothers cartoon, I don't even know if you can put that on TV today. You know, there's so much violence. And it's just Yosemite Sam, you know. Yeah, or Roadrunner. Yeah. Yes, well, I would like to take us all the way back to the days of ancient Greece and their plays, which were hideously bloody, but it was all off stage. It was not included in anything you saw because that's not what the plays were about. They weren't about the violence. They were about how to deal with the violence, how to react to the violence. And I think that is a fundamental viewpoint that makes a difference in the writer's interpretation of things. What is it to be? Are you talking about what violence does to people or are you talking about violence just to have it out there on the page? I think that's, and I think right there is a mark of a professional versus the amateur writer in the sense, depending on what you're writing. If you're writing Splatterpunk, which I've never read, but based on what you've described to me, I'd expect a lot of violence. And that would not be a mark of a amateur writer. But let's say I'm writing a, cop, um, a police procedural, and I'm showing violence. I'm showing heavy violence, meaning... I'm showing the blood, showing the bullet going through the guy's head, and the head explode are coming out with a big size of a plate at the other end where the bullet's exiting. That might be a sign of being an amateur, unless that actually is truly important to the story. Well, see, I would almost throw out that if you have one scene where you, the bullet's ripping through the guy's head. That's probably not a problem if you're using that scene for impact or if there's a reason for that scene or, you know. If there's a reason. You know, I can't write a JFK book without a guy getting shot in the head. It's just that's going to be a part of the story. The problem becomes if, say, every five or six pages there's a guy who's getting his head splattered against the wall. Or maybe it's even every page. Or maybe it's a couple of guys on one page. That's when maybe you're entering a level of violence. But... You know, if you're riding the psychopath uh-huh. who's running around doing that, then there's going to be that level of violence. Yeah, if you're writing some kind of thriller, especially with the psychological thriller like that, yeah, yeah you're expect you're going to show a certain level of violence that you will not see, like for example, in a cozy. Well, look at uh, um, uh, the books, uh, the Silence of the Lambs, and, uh-huh. and novels like that. Anything with Hannibal, you know, Lecter in it. I mean, he's incredibly violent. Or Dexter. Yeah, or Dexter, any of the serial killers. You know, Mm -hmm. all of these guys are incredibly violent. Their violence is generally used for a purpose. It generally, there's a reason in the story for this amount, this level of violence. Um, Has anyone noticed a change in the level of violence or the the visibility and focus of violence in media? (laughs) All all kinds. Game of Thrones, anyone? I think... Part of that is to do with you're no longer going for general audience. So since we don't have to appeal to the general audience, as in family safe, then you can, in theory, make things that aren't supposed to be appropriate for little kids now. Well, there's also the question of real realism versus 
being kid-gloved about it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to take a crack at that. On purpose, I watched a little movie, which mm-hmm. was called Von Richthofen and Brown. Yep. It was a movie from the 70s, set in World War I with the bloody red baron Manfred von Richthofen, who had kills at least 73, which both sides say, and way many more than that that were unconfirmed. Okay? So, it was bloody. You would expect it to be a bloody movie. This is what I observed. There were squadron dogfights, nine in number. There were two examples of one side scraping the other and blowing up their entire base. There was one fist fight, and there was one example of a guy shooting a machine gun at another shoulder on his same side. So there was a lot of violence in it. This is a movie that was 93 minutes long. Today, if you have a movie with a lot of violence in it, I pick out uh, Django Unchanged, for example. Unchained. 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 Okay. Well, he was unchanged, too, wasn't he? Yeah, for those who don't, for some, yeah, he was unchanged, too. And for those who don't know of a movie, just, I don't know where you've been hiding, but if you don't know it, this is a Quentin Tarantino movie. It is indeed. And there are plenty of examples of violence, but I'd say there are not nearly so many as that would be. I'm no mathematician, or you could tell me how many that would be per minute. You know, There weren't that many, but they were far longer and far more graphic. So what I think that suggests is that tastes change. True. So I agree with you entirely, Kathleen. Yeah. I was just thinking, um, this is a subtopic, so if someone wants to stay in what we are now, this is slightly different. I was thinking, uh, violence appropriate for children, whether or not they think violence is appropriate to children. Um, it used to be the truism that you couldn't make kids' books too scary. And I forget who, um, I forget who was the first best-selling children's author that proved you could make children's books scary. Um, it Stein, might maybe R.L. Stein could be, but this is. But I'd say Roald Dahl. Roald Dahl is probably numbers wise that might be him. Uh, Roald Dahl wrote Matilda and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But I was thinking of Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events, and uh, Neil Gaiman wrote The Graveyard Book and Coraline. You know, uh, and I'm just going to add a little bit to that. My bachelor's degree is elementary education, uh, which I never did end up teaching, but. When I was studying it, I had a class which was on children's literature, and as part of that, we had to write a story. I can't write children's fiction to save my life. I couldn't back then because I was too violent. I was able to get up to middle middle school age because I had shootings involved. It was dealing with drugs and all that stuff. But the teachers back then were saying, oh, no, you got a certain level of violence not allowed in children's books. And it was very clear, and I know that level has changed since then, but... Yeah. Um, I was going to point out fairy tales. Yeah. Because oh, yeah. Of course, I fairy love, tales well, weren't originally children's stories. Yeah. No, no, that's but, a good, grim fairy tales. <laughs> yeah. I love fairy tales. And the Grimm brothers, when they wrote the fairy tales, not wrote, they wrote well, they, them down. They literally then, wrote them. <laughs> they collected them and then modified them for a wider audience and marketed them. To children, and um, they were told. I thought that came later. Go that came later. Parents were like, "This is too violent for our kids. Fix it." Um, so. not necessarily. Actually, if you read the original Grimm, and this was the fifty stories translated into English from German, because the, these were German folk tales for adults, mm-hmm. and they trans. It was the English translation that was the fifty or so tales for children, and um, what they considered inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Actually, it so wasn't sex. so much the violence; it was the sex. Pregnancy in a children's book was a big no-no. And that's what I wanted to talk about, actually, because one of my favorite stories growing up was the story, um, The Goose Girl, where the the woman who takes her, um, the, the servant who takes her mistress, the princess's place, tries to go get married to the princess's husband and, yeah. like, sends the girl off to be a servant and kills her horse yeah. and hangs its head on, like, the gate. She is, um, at the end... Stuck in a barrel full of nails, well, studded with nails, sorry. There's a big difference. And then <laughs> rolled around the city until she dies. Yeah. That's pretty gruesome. Mm-hmm. That was some of my favorite kind of ending for, like, fairy tale villains. But Rapunzel, I never knew about her, you know, 
being pregnant until I was much, much older and found out there were other versions. So clearly the kind of violence I was reading was okay for kids. Well, okay, there's a difference. Hmm. I write for kids. I write middle grade. I've been writing middle grade for a while now. And there is a difference level. I do inject some violence, but it's all age appropriate. So I'm not going to have a kid who's there, you know, plowing off with a machine gun like crazy or something like that. I know it can happen, but (laughs) the point is, is that that's not necessarily like appropriate level of violence for the kids. However, I do have in, you know, my book that's coming out, uh, there are kids riding these giant mech machines and fighting each other. You know, other people in giant mech machines. Gundam. A little bit. The Victorian Gundam. Gundam. (laughs) But the point is, is that you have these fairy tales. Things like if you take Jack and the Giant Killer, you know, who Jack and the Beanstalk, for those who don't know, he goes up, you know, and ends up killing this giant when the giant falls down. Um, There's all kinds of levels and violence that you can get in the Mary uh, Mother Goose tales. If you want to go to Hans Christian Andersen, just look at, uh, you know, the Little Mermaid. He was a sadist. (laughs) Most of the fairy tales came from from oral lore. Yep. Uh-huh. And their function was entirely different than modern literature. After all, let's face it, if you were a parent and you lived in the woods, you have no fences, no way to keep these little kids there with you necessarily every single minute. What's to do? Scare the big Jesus out of them so they stay exactly. home. And that's what those fairy tales were about. Today's Brad says, are very much different. What are we trying to do today? Well, and that's just it. Today, I mean, you know, violence is, you can, it can be used in many levels. I mean, if you want to take something like Hunger Games, which is technically written for young adults, I mean, you know, the violence in there is about shocking the people. You know, and I mean the readers. You know, the, the level of violence that's there is meant to, you know, leave an impression on you. But it has a purpose. That's it the has important a purpose. aspect. You know, and I think so long as there is, then you're fine. I mean, kids deal with violence every day. They have to deal with bullies. They have to deal with fights at school. They have to deal with stuff they see on TV, hear on the radio, even just the news. Kids aren't immune to this. They know about it. So, you know, I think hiding it as we did for so long, you know, was kind of ridiculous. And we had Bugs Bunny and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we were still seeing it like crazy. Tom and Jerry is horrid. (laughs) And one of the things that note... But I love Tom and Jerry, so... Yeah. One of the things to note about going back to fairy tales with violence and so forth, I think some of the candy coating of it came about with the Disney with the Disney franchise movies. I think it was because of the culture at the time. Yeah, Are you telling me the Disney Little Mermaid ends differently from the Hans Christian Andersen <laughs> Just Little Mermaid. Slightly. Just we won't talk about what happens at the end of the yeah, Hans Christian. We, we're not going to ruin the stories. Just say, you know, if you get it by Hans Christian Andersen, you know, adults might want to read the full story before yeah. reading it to their kids. In or fact, any actually, Hans all Christian the Anderson Disney story. princesses have much different endings to their tales. <laughs> it's almost kind of scary. So let me, I'm going to change tracks here because we've really gotten caught up into fairy tales and so forth of violence. What do you, as a reader, find disturbing? No, let me let me rephrase that. When do you find that you get kicked out of a story because you find the violence in that story to be cartoonish or completely inappropriate? Like tonally? Maybe or... tonally or is in the I know let me just say in my case, I will read a fight scene of some kind in a story and with my background both in physical hand to hand to hand fighting Versus weapon fighting versus, um, be it uh, firearm to firearm fighting, I guess I cry BS a lot uh, on some certain types of stories. Well, yeah, anytime they do anything that either physics won't allow or doesn't actually happen in the real world, uh then, you know, you're going to get yanked down. Um, can I say something that doesn't necessarily pull me out, but if Jin was here, she probably would say? Ooh, okay. It. Okay, I don't rem- uh if a dog or a cat or a pet animal gets hurt for basically just to up, up the ante because they don't want to hurt a human, they hurt the pet instead. I was going to ask a question about that because Stephen King kills dogs in a lot of his books, and that's how I know I hate characters in them because they're evil because they kill innocent little dogs. Yes. What are some of like the the violence taboos in 
It depends. It's not very specific. Killing yeah. animals. I hate that. Is that true for Bugs every book? Bugs me in every no. book no. I read no. in. No. It's it, true on mysteries where you can't kill... For certain mysteries, you can't kill a cat or can't kill a dog. Even off screen. Yeah, even off screen. Well, there are, there's a whole subset of literature that says you should never kill off the dog simply because that's going to anger a huge chunk of the population. Now, in Old Yeller, but it's okay that the dog dies. That's it is not so okay it was not the dog okay. dies. It was but not okay It's at not all. okay in Marley and Me. It's not okay in K-9. Where, it's not where okay the red fern grows? No. Hooch. No. Yeah. Any of these books. No, 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 no. It's not okay. <laughs> All Even dogs like, live you know, forever, not go to heaven. Thank you. The last unicorn is just hard to deal with. <laughs> that poor unicorn. Can we go? Um, because. But, sorry, you're asking taboos, about other troops? Do you want like, other taboos? Taboos and tropes and stuff. But um, also to do with types of violence. Because well, killing's easy. There anytime you're dealing with, like, you know. So, things you generally want to stay away from, unless you're going to make these the huge parts of your book, is obviously rape, molestation of kids, uh, any kid violence. If you've got serial killers killing kids, that's really hard to deal with. That's going to be really hard for readers to deal with. So any and of those, hard to sell a book. Exactly. If you're trying to do that. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, in essence what we're trying to do. And if you're out there ticking off over half your readership, you're never going to, you know, sell a book. So you can keep these things in and make it your shock moment, but if it's every couple of pages, you're killing the dog, then the kid, then, you know, that's just a book most people probably aren't going to want to read. That reminds me of uh, Good Omens by Neil Gaiman. That It's one of his more approachable books. But, Neil Gaiman uh, Terry Pratchett. Yeah, but uh, he, there's, it's a funny book about uh, the apocalypse. apocalypse, but anyway, in that one, the the Antichrist gets misplaced with the wrong family. <laughs> but the point is, um, there the babies get switched around. There's sort of like a musical babies moment. Mm-hmm. But the point is, we actually found out what happened to the other babies. So no babies were actually harmed in it. So, you know. Yeah, but I mean, look at Game yeah. of Thrones. We were throwing that out earlier. Yeah. That goes to prove that any level of violence is acceptable. Uh-huh. You know, so long as you use it in a right moment. I mean, he kills off kids. He kills off women, he kills off old people, he kills off everybody. Technically, Star Wars killed off a bunch of kids. He does also, you well, so yeah. does Shakespeare. Yeah. And some of his stories, especially Henry V, where all the um, kids were with the baggage got murdered by the French. Yeah, but violence used appropriately, uh-huh, exactly. I think, will always have a place because of the types of stories we generally are telling. It sounds like um, in Game of Thrones specifically, because I- I've read much of the series and I'm waiting for the last ones before I go back and reread the entire thing so please hurry um the level of violence that is used seems entirely appropriate to the world and the contract that's set up with the reader and the first death that hits you in Game of Thrones book one um that was spoiler alerts okay the first death is a character that one would not expect to die in most books is one of the, the, the bulletproof characters you're expecting to stay around forever. Mm-hmm. So in that single death, George R. R. Martin was like, nobody is safe. This exactly. is a dangerous world. Speaking of He's that, that reminds me of Spooks, uh, which uh-huh. at MI5, Spooks is the British version. Dave right. told me about this. Uh, TV series? Yeah, TV yeah. series. But in, what was it? You said it was the second or third the, episode? The very second episode of a story where... Two MI5 agents go undercover into a white supremacy group. They get found out and are being tortured slash questioned by the bad guys. And the bad guy takes the woman, the woman MI5 agent, and puts her head into a fry fryer with the oil going. And obviously she gets killed mercifully at the end, but still. Anybody could die at any time. I would like to ask about that. Actually, anybody could die any time. Are there typical victims of violence that you've noticed in in stories, like women in refrigerators, where women tend to die so that men's yes. story arcs can? It's an entire genre. Femjet, it's called. Yep. Uh-huh. Are you serious? Oh I'm yeah. Serious. Please explain. I have never heard of this as an actual genre. <laughs> just as a terrible thing that breaks my heart. Well, I think it came about because so many of the books of the seventies, fifties, so on were written by men that they didn't want to see other men barbecued. Yeah, exactly. I'd rather see women barbecued. Women, certainly at the time, did not have as many rights and, and perks as we do today. And so they were kind of a lower class, shall we say. And that's how you get Femjet. 
And a lot of them are. Video games. Hard-boiled, especially. Video games. Um, perpetuating some of that. Came straight trope. out of it, I think. Jobs uh, versus women in video games. Feminist Frequency. Anita Sarkeesian. Series of videos. Amazing. Please watch them. Another thing, not sexist, whatever, but there's actually a term used in, I think it's Hollywood, a term mm-hmm. called red shirts. Oh, tell me about red shirts. Okay. They're my favoritist. Okay, so red shirts, I believe, I could be wrong, were accidentally invented by Star Trek, or at least that's where the name came from. That's when you have an ensign where you know the character's name, like in that episode, it's the brand new character. Uh, the reason why they're called red shirts is because the security officers in they Star were Trek were wearing red. Series. But in yeah. the original series, yes. So then they go down, and on the away mission, they're the ones that die. They're the cannon fodder? Yes. Cannon fodder, the, yes. The ones they're the, that they're, take the can, non, they're the non-character. The non-main character who is there to die so that the main character can live and grow from that. Now, occasionally, I don't know if these are technically red shirts, but if there's a guest star, guest stars are very likely to die. Guest stars can always die. They don't always die. That's like a yeah. TV that's phenomenon. Yeah. yeah, that's so that we don't have to bring no, back I'm just a famous saying actor next week. Occasionally, <laughs> occasionally, for instance, you have a character that red shirts are kind of red shirts are like stormtroopers. They're disposable. They're interchangeable. You can also get a character where you get a named character. You know a little bit about them. They actually have something of a story. They have some good lines. You're supposed to care about these characters before they're killed off. Okay, so well, it yes. sounds like there are two kinds of cannon fodder characters then. Um, in this case, I wouldn't call the number There's, second cannon fodder per se. They're well, the but there yeah, are two kinds of characters who are gonna die. Mm-hmm. There's the one who is disposable, who you never really know. They're throwaway. You might get a name, uh-huh. but quite frankly, if he's a guy who sticks his hand in the alien substance after taking off his spacesuit because he's an idiot, then. We don't really care that he's going to die. We care that he's infected. Then there's the characters like, why don't the main characters get these lines? Oh, because this character has to die. You need to like them enough so that you miss them when they're dead. Yeah. And I think that's handled a lot. Also, I know your reference to science fiction and Alien. But also, too, if you read a lot of thrillers, especially... I'm going to throw John Lutz out there with his entire um, thrillers that take place in New York. He sets it up very well. You only see these characters sometimes only for a chapter before they get killed by the serial killer. Sometimes it's a couple of chapters. Now, see, this but, is why I like books the setup. Better. Yeah, but the setup and yeah. the setup is faster, and you and the trick is to develop the reader's sympathy for that character. So when they get killed, you actually feel something for yeah. that character. Now, in most books, for instance, you know the main character is bulletproof. With very few exceptions, your point of view character will not die, at least not until the last chapter. I think that depends on how it's written. Yeah, but in most books, mm-hmm. you, there are notable exceptions. But if it's a first person, they are definitely bulletproof unless their ghost comes or right back. But Is um, that, I have a question real quick. Is The Lovely Bones, which I have not read or seen the film adaptation of, was that told by a ghost? I don't know. I, I didn't read it either. A, a, a girl who died and her ghost is telling the yeah. story of the solving yeah. her murder. So okay. it's told from the ghost. So yeah, I'm pretty sure it's told from the ghost. Party. So then it sounds like even the exceptions are the characters still in existence somehow. Well, the here's the thing: with a main but, character, a main character is either going to commit violence or have violence committed upon them. That's never going to change. It's right. your side characters that will have the potential of dying or being. You know, having the violence, you know, severely influence them, sort of influence them, or any of those kind of things. Your main character is there as your filter. They're the filter for the reader. So they can die, they can not die. I mean, you can twist it however you want. Majority of the time, they're not going to die because they're the, they're the avenue for the reader. But the point is, is that you have these various characters. Your non-characters, your side characters, those are the ones that can come in, come out, die off if you need to. But most of the time, they won't have an impact. That death will have very little impact on the reader or the character. However, when you kill off main characters, like other main characters, big characters, that's when you have impact moments of books. So I I think violence is almost getting defined as something that allows you, you know, it's it's a storytelling device more so than it is something when you're jacked in. Well, yeah, I had (laughs) an... In Jack the Ripper, I killed off a character, Grandma. And I killed her off, uh, I guess, maybe a little too late. I'm not sure. But the reviews 
from people that that like me. <laughs> if they had anything bad to say about the book, it was that I killed her off too early. Yeah. Or I killed her off too late. Or I shouldn't have killed her off at all. Yeah. So you can learn something there. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but your timing matters a lot, too, as to whether the character is well-liked or not. And something else, too, along with that, is the choice of violence that's done. I think the choice of violence demonstrates the character. So the timing being important of when to do it, how to do it, is does it feel accurate to the reader in the universe that you're painting? And then the choice of the violent method depicts the character. In other words, let me, um, I know nobody can see Kathleen here, but if Kathleen was to strangle me to death, she it would be outside of her type of personality. I don't know if I could strangle anyone. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, but, you could. <laughs> but if suddenly she help, was to... Like another person's hand. Oh, no, a garage. You can yeah, yeah, a garage. Garage. Oh, I have help? Okay. Okay. <laughs> but if she takes a baseball bat to someone, that's a sign that she is enraged, usually, in the, in the violence. Mm. And that's coming out. I was, just, I was thinking Kathleen would be more likely to poison someone, really. But, and it's oh, more feminine aspect of it. It is now. It is now. Well, it was even historically. Not forever historically. Yeah, but, of I mean, inheritance. Uh-huh. I was, um, when you were giving your examples, David, of the Geralt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Geralt. Yeah, I'd said it wrong for years, so I have to check these things. That's right. Versus um, the baseball bat, I had two mental images immediately of the kind of character that would be using these things. Uh-huh. The first one was an assassin. Like mm-hmm. Jet Lee with his rosary beads of death for <laughs> weapon four. So basically an assassin, someone who is not necessarily trained to kill, but knows how to do it effectively. Versus the baseball bat, which is the weapon a woman gets when she hears something at the window or in the house and she goes to investigate unless she's a black person in a horror movie, in which case she needs to go the other direction real fast. Well, okay, so and take her cell phone. Oh well, my there, gosh. There yeah, goes thank back you. to your other question about who are your common victims? Yeah. Each genre has its own list of common victims. Yes. Uh, weapons, a baseball bat is a weapon of opportunity. A lot of people Not have, well, yeah, but a lot of people have baseball bats around. Baseball bats have a bunch of other non-violent no, like purposes. Blunt force, yeah. Like any blunt weapon, a blunt yeah. weapon is a weapon of, of force and power used against somebody else, like, generally out of rage. Cricket bats in yeah. Shaun of the Dead. Fear for one's life with exactly. the zombies. They make really good weapons, which is why we always reach for them. But the point is, is that it is a weapon that you are grabbing and you are going to put some forceful rage into to dispatch your opponent. It's the only way to do it. Yeah, I was thinking, in, unless you're using some sort of rope-like device for a garage, if you actually have a... Well, yeah, if you have a garage that you don't make on the spur of the moment... Likely, unless you're a weapons no. collector, you know. A garage yeah. can be anything. It could be the camera yeah. strap right there. It could be, you know, the sleeve of my yeah. a belt. Anything like that can be used. Are you saying? Then, but, but a garage is a, is, an, is a weapon that you're bringing on to somebody, and then you're going to overpower them and put them down and kill them that way. It's it's a, like she said, it's a weapon of stealth. Right. You've got to get it up and around. Mm-hmm. A, a baseball bat is not a weapon of stealth. It's yeah, a weapon of rage. Terrible. A gun is a weapon that you know requires very little other than pulling the trigger so you can have rage behind it or it can have a skilled person behind it a sword is kind of in the same vein but you know any of those are going to take a level of skill to use mm-hmm. i think Ian defranco has a song lyric that says any tool is a weapon if you hold it right oh yeah that's and true that that do training that. totally agrees with that yeah. anything anything can be used as a weapon. Well, a book can be a blunt force weapon in anything, yeah. So the type of... book can also be a shield. The type of character, then, if if it was, say, I was watching a film with Jet Li in it, Uh martial arts master, adorable little mousy person who will kill you, or um, versus a film with, I don't know... Arnold Schwarzenegger. Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe. Big guys who beat people up. Maybe, maybe. If I saw like Jet Li in a film versus, sure, Sylvester Stallone, I would bet on Jet Li because he can pick up anything and kill you with it, and he doesn't have to pick up anything to kill you. Jackie Chan, not that he's a warrior, but like his movies, he's using anything. 
I like um, yeah, Forbidden the point Kingdom, is, is where that... they're both in it together, and you see them using these different kinds of styles, and everything is a tool. To Rocky doesn't need a weapon to kill you either. Does he, he just his needs mind his powers? His, you know, his fist and his muscles and the brute force of that to dispatch. I mean, his that's fist the level has of to reach you, and it's not going to hit Jet Li. <laughs> Once again, this goes back to the choice of the action of violence tells yeah. you something psychologically about the character who's using it. Could we talk about, uh, do we want to keep talking about this, or do, could we move on no, to... No, the psychological, uh, psychological violence. Into that yeah, too, psychological yeah. violence. And that's something else, too, which I'm glad you're opening up with this is a lot of time now I gotta be careful with that <laughs> depending on the love on the fiction and who's writing it and when that's the universe resets after each, each story there's a, there's a lot of violence that doesn't seem to affect anybody in the story from book, from book to book or story to story and sometimes the level of violence affects those characters a great deal and they've got to push past No, them. you said something I think needs to be defined. So, universe reset. What do you mean by that? The universe reset is where at the end of a story, now this goes for books, TV, radio dramas, which are now podcasts. Anything so in a forth. series. Anything that's in a series. And, and actually, in all truth, Seinfeld was known to do this quite a bit. Star Trek did this often is at the end of that episode, the entire everything that happened in that story is not approached again in future stories, or very rarely. Example, you get somebody who... Actually, let me use... Um, I'm going to use Star Trek Next Generation. Picard, who is tortured constantly throughout the entire series, he is captured by the bad guys, which are the Cardassians in this story. He is mentally and physically tortured psychologically mm-hmm. applied where he has to the torturer is trying to get him to admit there's five lights instead of the four lights that he sees and in the end he walks away saying yes you know he gets rescued he gets rescued and in the very end of the story we see him talking to counselor troy about what he's been through well apparently counselor troy must be the greatest psychologist that ever existed because it never affects them in the next, throughout the rest of the series. Okay, her magical pregnancy didn't affect her either at the next. <laughs> well, hold on. To jump in on that though, uh-huh. you then go to the Locutus of Borg episode, which does apply, which does fall in, and then there is that where they bring it up, and where you're really dealing with here, and the reason we have this, and in everything you mentioned, it's the same from TV to radio drama to this. It's different writers. Mm-hmm. It's not if you have the same writer writing every episode of the show you would get more of that nuance. But because it's a different writer and a different episode, and he's writing them, and they're writing them separately and not all together, that you don't have that kind of... Which is why in some of the great, great TV shows that have done that, carried an arc through, multiple arcs through every episode through a season, I think is better than the one-off series. So let me throw a book version at you, and I'm going to go to children's books. Um, Either Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys. They get tied up, I don't know how many times. I'm sorry, if I'm going to get tied up, I'm going to have some type of fear that's going to stick with me. I'm going to have some type of memory that sticks with me, but it doesn't ever seem to affect them. See, and now you're dealing with kids' literature. I am dealing with kids' literature. And in truth, any of the kids who actually see violence in real life are affected by the violence they witness. And it can be bullying at school, as you mentioned before. You have urban kids who might be in living in neighborhoods where basically their choice is, is the way they see it is either you work the corner store or you work the corner. There's lots of violence in that type of society. And it affects them greatly. Um, same thing with on the rural areas there are certain levels of violence. Go ahead. I wanted to bring up the movie Gaslight, which is I think 1940s. There are two versions of it um, that were made Gaslight is... Um, yeah, tell me about it, because I don't remember it. It is a film about a woman who marries someone um, who does not believe her and keeps telling her when she says the gaslight in the in the hall is shifting. It's basically getting dimmer, which means that someone above her in the house is using a light. She's saying that's getting dimmer when no one's home. I think someone's up there. Somebody's in 
the, the closed off attic that's been boarded up forever or something. And he keeps telling her, no, there's nothing there. And over the course of the movie, you see that he's the person that's up there. And through various little tricks that are really not cool, he's trying to drive her insane by making her doubt everything she perceives. Speaking of that's which... That's a kind of abuse, and that spawned a term in yeah. psychology. Gaslighting. Yes. Yes. Gaslighting is a term in psychology where basically you... The idea is to... You either convince the person themselves or you convince the world that that person is insane. And he does both for a time in the films. Yeah. Um, What's but really that's a, yeah. That's a huge kind of emotional violence. And I think that in stories often and films as well, the level of violence that we see is not then translated to the emotional aspects that would continue, as David has said. Like, there's a, there's a big difference between seeing someone get punched in the face and seeing someone backed into a corner terrified. Mm-hmm. You know that one of them's blatantly going to happen, but the other one, you have to wonder what's going to happen, and it's almost worse. Oh, Henry has a wonderful little story in which a man commits murder by psychology... And the way he does it is that he is a midget, and so is his friend. And what he does, the friend has a little limp, is he whips off the bottom of the cane so that the man thinks he's growing. And he eventually commits suicide because what job is there for a midget who's too tall? And there's, there's also a short story, I can't remember the name of it, where psychology is used. I'm going to talk about Alfred Hitchcock in a minute, so I'll just sidebar to it. But there's a short story where this man is really angry at the world, just really wants his um, rivals to die. And another man shows up and says, hey, I'm part of a society, and every day at, I'm going to say 10 o'clock, he says exactly when, but at 10 o'clock, we all think about this about killing somebody. And it's just, we think this person needs to die. And eventually that person always dies. And the original guy is really excited. He thinks he's going to be part of this group. And spoiler alert, he turns out to be the next victim where this man has come up to him and said, hey, we've been hired to, t- to basically think, uh, think you to death every day until you die. So you've got millions of people around the world or wherever thinking about you being dead. And, of course, he... Well, How much uh, of it is self-fulfilling prophecy? Cause oh, I a lot. Exactly. And what else is self-fulfilling prophecy but sometimes the psychology behind it? Uh, Ten Little Indians... I won't say which one, but one of the characters in there, it's a murder mystery, but one of them actually commits suicide. The, uh, the premise of Ten Little Indians by Agatha Christie is an island of strangers, ten of them, um, invited by a host. They That never really shows know. up. Yes, and then suddenly, like, one by one, they all start dying, and the number of little Indian figurines on the table goes with each person that dies. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, then, and they can't get off. And sometimes the story's called, and then there is one. And then there were none. Yes. Yeah. Um, Alfred Hitchcock, master of psychology, or psychological thriller. If you ever watch his, watch his movies, it's very rare, it does happen, it's very rare where you actually see the violent blow or the violent action itself happen. If you look at Psycho, example of where you never see the actual knife enter the person. You see the blade, you see the reaction. You see the blade, you see the reaction. You see the blade, you see the reaction. You see the person acting like, acting like they're going to stab. You never see the contact. And the reason why this happens is, as Hitchcock said, and I might paraphrase because I'm not going to that quote, is it's more psychologically impacting, more fearful, if you will, to show is about to happen rather than showing it to happen. Well, the anticipation of fear is greater than the fear itself. itself. Exactly. And I can imagine scarier things in the dark than I would ever see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, I'm going to turn this over to whoever next, but there's one example where he actually does show it, and that's rope. Um, it starts off with an opening scene where a guy is being garroted. Go ahead. No. Jet Li's not the one doing it, though. No, it's not gently doing it, but that. I have a feeling it's not gently. It's not gently. Well, okay. Sorry, you were talking about you know different types of violence, and psychological violence is definitely one. But then you also have, and this goes to some of the violence you were talking about, which is violence for sheer entertainment. Right. 
and you know any video game or you know you can make a huge case about all this kind of stuff but books are the same way violence in books even even in the splatterpunk or any of this kind of stuff it's violence for the sake of entertainment now we can argue whether that's true entertainment or not or how that affects people or anything like that but the reality is is that you know we live in a culture now especially that treasures this that you know playing call of duty being able to sit there and yell and scream at people over the course of your tv and shooting up you know tons of people in video games that's that's a level of violence that's acceptable now so and, and it is socially acceptable because it's not genuine exactly and we know that it's not exactly genuine. and part of that knowing that it's not real is the point of it well see and there's I'm, I'm going to go a little bit away from what you're saying I'm going to use examples where our culture still, I'm going to say it has not evolved from Roman culture. No. Ancient Rome, you had the gladiators, and you had violent violence as an inner form of entertainment. Let's, now we've, let's advance 2,000 years. We have, I love hockey, but hockey. <laughs> How many times, what's the joke? I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. Yes. Do not take fighting at a hockey. Yeah. So there's... And I really... I prefer to watch a hockey game, not the fight, because of some rules. But, okay, from a martial <laughs> arts point of view, they're not, they're not allowed to do certain martial arts stuff. They're not allowed to it's fight correctly. It's not I know. Well, each other. And that's something else, too. <laughs> and if you ever really watch it from a point... If you're a trained fighter and you look at it, you go, uh, yeah, right. Even though it's not fake. Wait, unlike, pulling my um, shirt off in the middle of the thing isn't a thing? No, oh. no. It, unlike so, like WWE wrestling, which is another example, it's not fake. Um, WWE, WWE usually is fake, but once again, another level of violence. You mentioned MMA. Cage fighting is really what that is. That is real, as far as I know. <laughs> and, and from what I've seen, it is real. And yet... Look at all the money. Look at all the fans. Look at all the inter- quote-unquote entertainment that comes around that. Be it any of the sports I've mentioned, and there are other sports out there that are also violent. Hey, I am waiting for somebody to die in reality television. <laughs> I've been waiting for this since Survivor came on the air, Thank and they you for have just that up, not. Which been, I was going to say. Uh, well, go ahead and throw it out if you want. Uh huh. Go for it. Are you you want to finish? No, I, I'm going to just finish by saying. I'm just saying I want people to die. I know television. that we like to think we don't have this violent society, and we like to think we like to protect our kids from this violent society. Guess what, people? I'm sorry. It's out there. I was going to bring up reality television specifically, not just for physical violence, but the psychological and emotional damage it seems to do to people. Um, like, a, there was a, a show on sci-fi, an original series that was um, Opposite Worlds. Yes. And what they did was <laughs> oh, they yeah. stuck a bunch of people in, like, the future, state-of-the-art kind of uh, luxury apartment-esque place. And then they stuck... The other group of people in, like, Stone Age's level, nothing, no tools, nothing. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and all down to clothes, too, so, Uh like, yeah, keep nothing. And what they would do is they would pit these people against each other in challenges. This one group that was well-fed and well-rested versus this one group that had not eaten a decent meal in two days or slept well at all. And they wanted to see what would happen and which group would fight harder. Like, that's that's not okay. A guy broke his leg right off injury. the bat, like yeah. the first well, challenge. Did he break it, or was it broken by the it other guy? It was broken who for him. him. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, like, that's. What do you mean by broken for they him? They were in a challenge together, mm-hmm. and the one dude shoved him off, and, and he ended up falling and breaking his leg. And it falling was, from how high? Yeah, pretty high. Yeah, so, like, that's entertainment? They well, were calling it a social experiment, but it's not. It, it stops being a social experiment and just becomes. Dangerous. It's gratuitous, and the whole point of it is to be gratuitous. I mean, if you look at the MTV shows, and I'm talking about the challenge ones and everything like that, they've been doing the same similar kinds of things for quite some time. But, I mean, if we go back to the 1980s, there's a great movie called The Running Man, which Mm -hmm. basically set up the future of what television's probably going to end up being, which is where, you know, you have guys, maybe they're criminals, maybe they're not, but we like to think they are. And then we throw them into these death scenarios where they got to fight for survival and, you know, kill or I be killed. I just realized that was the brainchild for The Hunger Games. Well, yeah, that's also with the book, too. If yeah. I remember right by... Wasn't it by Michael Crichton? Uh, I'm going to look at that up. 
Why audience, are, standby. Go ahead, guys. Why are things that, like reality TV, I would consider violent. It's emotionally scarring for me much of the time because of the things that happen to people. It's um, one reason I like certain kinds of reality TV shows where creation of things like Project Runway or a Platinum mm-hmm. Hit those are the point and no matter what sabotage you try and do it's not going to do anything to keep you in okay i just went on a road trip Mm -hmm. and part of this road trip for about 20 minutes or so i had to sit on a highway not moving why for no other reason than on the other side of the highway there had been a a two-car fender bender no deaths no craziness no mass carnage nothing like that but I was literally stopped on the highway for 20 minutes so we could all roll by and stare at it. Rubberbackers? Yeah. That, I'm sorry, when it's you... never going to go away. I mean, this is ingrained in us as human beings. Sorry, I thought you were sitting on the highway, just you, not in your car. No. Sorry. No, in a car. But yeah, so essentially it was this whole thing of we love violence. On some level, we love staring at it. As so long as it's not happening to us... We love seeing it. Oh, I think even if it's happening to us, because what do you think those reality TV shows are? They're people volunteering to be the us to get attention. Yeah, but yeah. see, that's that's uh, that's trying to be famous, and that's that's a whole other thing than the people sitting at home watching it, going, you know, man, I really hope this guy on Survivor dies today. Maybe and he will eat the slug. That actually separates man as a as from the animals, if you will, only because we have an ability to learn. From each other's mistakes. I don't know. Orders seem to really don't. like violence. <laughs> yeah, I know. But um, real Maybe back. The separator. Yeah. Um, real quick, back to the Running Man. We're talking about a 1987 film, not the 1963 film, and it was <laughs> actually a novel that was written by, though published underneath a pseudonym, was written by Stephen King. Oh, okay. I didn't realize. Well, I think it was Michael Crichton, but apparently I'm wrong. But okay, King. you take you take Running Man, you take Death Race, you take uh, what was the weird one with the the weird game that. Uh, There's Saw movies. James Caan Con- was in the first one, and then uh, oh, they uh, redid it. It's like Roller Derby. Yeah, roller, yeah, yeah. Roller Blade. Something, roller, yeah. something like mm-hmm. that. But Blade Runner? No, no, Blade Runner. No, no, Rollerball. Roller thank, thank you. you. A right. save from our people at STL <laughs> At STL Books <laughs> saves the day again. Yes, yeah, so Rollerball. Any of these kind of movies, they're all showing gratuitous violence put on for the masses, you know. I don't see that going away. It's been ingrained in us since day one. Look at King Kong. I mean, even something like that. It was crazy level of violence on display. Um, that makes me wonder about monsters and villains and whether the violence against them has changed at all and what is acceptable to do to a villain that's maybe not for another There's character. a reason why knights went out and chased dragons. You know, because it was it was a much better tale than to tell of a knight going out and killing another lord or a human. Why was it better? Well, because it's, it's, you know, I, I can impart all the evil I want and everything like that, and I don't have to feel bad about it if they're a monster. You know, if, if they're a, and which is why we demonize and dehumanize our, you know, the people we go against in war. But, you know, monsters specifically, you know, any kind of monster from Frankenstein to a dragon to some legendary creature or something... You know, it allows us to impart onto it evil thoughts, evil, you know, intentions and all kinds of that. Make it a personification of evil without having to take in any of the the bad sense of seeing another human being, any of the compassion we might feel for something like that. Think of Beowulf. Well, and also, too, I'm going to use, just to stay with what Brad said, now turn it over, is we will often call other people who we don't want to see their characteristic of characteristics in ourselves or believe that they could exist in us, monsters, Adolf Hitler, various serial killers, so forth. We don't want to think we could do that. But yet they're, they were human. But So maybe that's why some of the scary horror movies are like making the monsters more sympathetic because it helps us see the monster within us. Yeah. Could be. I would... Um, also point out that something that writers are told often is to make the villain sympathetic in some way because nobody becomes evil in a vacuum and often the villain doesn't think they're doing the wrong thing. Everyone's the hero of their own story. Exactly. And this is why we have tons of, you know, villain is the hero now, like Wicked or, you know, anything along those lines. Maleficent. But then in those cases, is the violence different? Like, when your villain becomes your hero, there are things you can't really do, 
I would think. I've heard a saying called, saying said, that every hero, every real hero, has a dark side. And it comes a question of the difference between the villain and the hero in a story is the choices that are taken. If you're not writing from a crim- from the from the bad guy's point of view. In other words, yes, every hero can be a story, but let's take, for example, if I'm writing a crime drama, well, that is a caper, I'll be writing it from the bad guy's point of view, technically. But every hero makes a decision between good or what's perceived good versus perceived evil, and it's not always something that's easy to do. I think that perceptions of violence change to some degree with the times in another respect, because it has a lot to do with moral righteousness. In the early 1900s, people sent out invitations to hangings, and it was considered quite an honor to get an invitation to a hanging. It was a good thing to do in the middle of the day. (laughs) Well, you're talking about when there were open hangings and a lot of people go, and they did. It would take picnic baskets and so on. I'm talking about a bit later when you had to have an actual invitation to it because it would be within a stockade. Uh-huh. I don't know about this, so please explain the open hangings versus these newfangled okay. invitation-only well, if you go back to the French Revolution, for example, the hangings, the beheadings, whatever, were out in the open. Yeah, right in the town anybody square. could come. Anybody could come. And there were no restrictions. They were supposed to. Kids went? Yes. Yes. And yeah, in some places they had to come yes. to witness it because they were witnesses of this proper punishment. So it was somewhat of um, the same way we we watch the same way we watch court dramas. You know, you watch somebody at court having to deal with the court process because they're guilty, maybe, or something like that. Same reason. It was the guilty person being punished. Yeah, capital punishment, unlike today, what when it is done was very visible to everybody who either by invitation or before that to anybody who was there to come and see it. Whereas nowadays, that type of punishment is kept only seen by certain witnesses to the to the actual execution and, and family. Yeah, so, and family. So it's a much more personal kind of thing. Right. Uh, but in those days, it was all about moral righteousness, and important people came to witnesses because it was the right thing, and everybody ought to know that this is the right thing, and this is what happens to you if you do the wrong thing. So yeah. sending a message oh, yeah. to the people. Oh yeah. This is why, as an example, let me go back in history, Spartacus, why they had all the um, slaves were crucified along the, si- along the side of the road that led to Rome. Don't do this. This is what's going to happen to you if you uprise. Even something like decimation. Decimation, which is the killing of every tenth man in a Roman legion. It was done not because that tenth guy had committed a crime. It was done to ensure that the other nine would never commit another crime again. Whereas now it's quite different, and we have movies like The Purge, in which violence runs totally rampant over everything, and anarchy reigns, which would not have been anything morally righteous, I think, by anybody's standards. Um, I have not read a whole, whole lot of Stephen King, which is terrible because I like his writing, even though he kills all the puppies. (laughs) And the things that I found most terrifying about his stories that I have read... um, and I'll use it as an example, and also the uh, TV film, whatever version of that. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> the four-hour miniseries. <laughs> I don't know. I saw yeah, it ages Pennywise later. Pennywise was scary. Yeah, he was. was. Um, but what was scary about the story, more than anything else, was the town and how pervasive the evil was. So that these kids were like the only ones that really took note of how violent and terrible things were. And the adults in the town, in um, the uh, TV version, uh, the main character, who's a girl, is being bullied very creepily in a sexual manner by some of the bullies in the town. Mm -hmm. And there's an adult that just watches and then turns around and goes into his house when she's like, help! Uh That's terrifying to me, more so than any, um, any crime that... Pennywise actually perpetuated against anyone in the town. Well, and that was kind of the point. Mm-hmm. Was that, you know, the, the psychological nature of, you know, of, of 
Pennywise is actually less so the the true violence that they're seeing, and more so it's everything. That yeah, they've done yeah. And around we enjoyed them. that. It, um, I was disappointed by the climax where they actually physically destroyed the monster. That was a real letdown for me. I like so. that kind of. I think it goes back to the thriller type thing, where it's the anticipation and the recognition that justice might not be done in this kind of world. Something we've been talking about, and you just kind of touched on, is that violence, no matter how you're using it, or you know, aggression, or whatever you you know, how you want to put on it, it's all being used for a purpose, less so than just being there. You know, it's either the background, it's the setting, it's the you know, the action event that you know perpetuates the story forward. It's something psychological that's meant to traumatize us. It's something to make us think. At its best. Yeah. And not but done at its in best. In the it's, original it's, yeah. Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Frankenstein's monster wasn't... The, the creation wasn't really the bad guy. No. The bad guy was the doctor. Dr. Frankenstein. Dr. Frankenstein. The human, not the reanimated... He's uh, never actually given a name. Yeah. Rejected by his creator. So He's a jerk. We're pretty much out of time for this episode. This can continue, and we probably will have future episodes on violence in fiction. But I think probably to end it is all violence in a fi- in the fictional story needs to serve a purpose. I don't care how much is in it or how little is in it, how you show it or don't show it. It has to have a psychological impact on the characters and on the reader and have a purpose to that violence. Otherwise, what's the purpose of having it there? I don't know. end of Mortal Kombat. <laughs> finish him. Oh, finish this that, episode. And on that note, thank you for listening and catch us next week. The Right Pack would like to thank STL Books for allowing us to record in their bookstore. STL Books and Gifts is St. Louis's newest independent bookstore with an emphasis on fine literature for adults and children and the most comprehensive selection of St. Louis books available anywhere. Visit them online at stlbooks.com or in person at 100 West Jefferson Avenue, Kirkwood, Missouri, 63122. Tune in next week as a right pack will conquer yet another pondering issue in the writing industry. Theme songs for Right Pack Radio were written and performed by Meredith Tate. All copyrights remain with her.